Well, a happy Friday night, everybody, and welcome into another edition of This Week in Hockey, along with Joe Vitale from the Blues Broadcast. I'm Alex Ferrario, as happy to be along with you tonight as the Blues are in the midst of another win streak. They're still on top and first in the Central Division, and not a whole lot of changes come trade deadline. But first things first, Joey V, Friday night hockey talk, buddy. Oh, man, you can't you can't ask for anything better than this. This is what it's all about. We're going to bring it to the people hard. we got lots to get into here. Obviously, Alex, huge win last night for the Blues at home in those beautiful 90s jerseys, and uh, I can't wait for the next two hours with you. Yeah, well, it, uh, it's nice things right now to only talk about with this Blues team, Joe, and that's the fact that they're in the midst of a six-game <clears throat> win streak. And as we go through these past couple of games from this past week for the Blues, I think you got to start with the Minnesota Wild Dallas Stars game. Of course, that Minnesota Wild one was on Sunday, but then right after that, it was the Blackhawks victory. But I want to start with the Minnesota Wild one because that was the first time I think the Blues kind of went through something different that they hadn't in the start of this win streak, and that was seeing 33 shots from the Minnesota Wild and still finding ways to win. Yeah, you know, I thought that was one of those interesting games where we uh, the St. Louis Blues didn't appear to be playing quite the game they wanted to obviously coming off that Dallas win, which was huge I thought that was a really connected game from the forward standpoint all the way down to the goaltender but you know that Minnesota game it was just a little bit different you know you talked a lot of players the coaches not necessarily super geeked about how they played that game but again tough central division rivalry on the road Minnesota is still like scratching and clawing for points and the funny thing is they're not out of it yet Alex I mean they have 69 points and they're sitting just three points out of a wild card spot. So I know it's easy to say that, oh, it's the Minnesota Wild. They just traded Jason Zucker. Billy Guerin, their general manager, seems to be kind of going through a bit of a uh, rebuild mode, kind of. But I'll tell you one thing. That is a team that is playing some desperate hockey. They have lots of veterans on that group. So the Blues expected, and I think they got exactly what they were, were expecting, the fact that it's a Minnesota team that is going to come out with some jam. And the one area that really stood out in that game was just Jordan Kyber. I mean, he was that spark plug. He got on the he got on the board first in that game from Marco Scandella, his first assist. And from the then from there, it seemed like the Blues got a lot of confidence from there. Of course, Braden Shen gets on the board, Oscar Sunquist as well. And then from that point on, it really was just uh, the Blues shutting down that door and having Jordan Bennington in that and looking back to what he looks like was uh, was a spectacular win. Well, and I feel like those two victories are a little more meaningful than the. Arizona Coyotes win or that New Jersey Devils win, Joe, mostly because you're taking on two teams that were rested, two teams that were prepared to be taking on the Stanley Cup champion. Of course, I'm talking about the Dallas Stars and the Minnesota Wild, and the fact that the Blues were able to come out and kind of single-handedly win that game. It wasn't like the one nothing victory or the 3 nothing victory that they had against New Jersey. We're talking four or five goals scored in the first and second period alone. Well, and again, Alex, it's, it's about having – those youthful guys coming up in moments like this. Okay, this is February, right? Okay, I believe the Blues played the Minnesota Wild. What game was that? Was that on a Saturday that night? That was that Alex? Sunday that night, was, actually. That was okay, it was yeah. a Sunday night game in February. Uh it's cold. You're in Minnesota. I'm sure I think it was like seven degrees up there when they landed in from Dallas. <laughs> I mean, this is the time of the year where you can make every excuse up in the world as a player just to be having an off night. But the Blues didn't. And, of course, you need those veterans to have a break every now and then. And that game really has summed up what I think has been a common theme for these Blues over the last three to four weeks since the end of that bye week slash all-star game was that the veterans need a break. 
we need some youthful guys, a core of youthful guys to really step up in that game. Jordan Cairo got on the board first. Of course, Braden Shen scored second. But then from there, Oscar Sunquist, Ivan Barbashev, those score the third and fourth goal. And, of course, Jordan Bennington, the youngster, shuts it out from there, and they win that game 4-1. So young guys stepping up and not only providing energy and momentum in games, but getting on the board. That takes so much pressure off the Ryan O'Reilly's, Tyler Bozak's, uh, you know, the Alex Petrangels, the Alexander Steens, where they know that these young guys are going to carry that load. Because in those, in those situations, you're on the road for a while. It's February. It's deep in the season. You're in the grind. The veterans are looking down the bench at those young guys and say, hey, big boys, hey, we need you here tonight. I need a break. And I thought those young guys stepped up big. Is that the worst part of playing hockey in February, Joe, when you go to random cities and it's even colder than the city that you actually live in? It, it's really hard. <laughs> it, it's very hard. And you kind of uh, – this is the time of year where you wake up, Alex. And I, I know a lot of people out there felt this way, Who you know, a lot of people who travel for a living – you wake up and you don't know where you are. You have to kind of, like, it takes you a minute to kind of like, okay, where am I at? Obviously I'm in a hotel room. What city I am? When do we get in? Cause these players, I mean, they're getting in at two, two 30 in the morning in some of these cities because they travel after the game. For example, I know that Dallas situation was a little different. They traveled the next day, right. but for the most part, these, these blues players will travel the day after the game. Uh, excuse me. The, the moment the game is over, they will load the bus, get to the airport, fly to that next city and they will get to those cities around 1, 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning, depending on what city it is and the situation, the travel time. These players will go to bed around 4. They will wake up roughly around 10, 30, 11, and they just do not know where they are. I mean, it's really crazy. But when you think about it, it's every excuse again in the world for these players to say, I'm tapping out. I got nothing tonight. But that's where you lean on those young guys. That's where you lead on the Jordan Cairo speed or the Oscar Sunquist forecheck. He had that terrific goal in that game, remember, on that forecheck. Single-handedly forechecked it, stripped it, uh, took it right to the net and buried it. I mean, those are those those plays where you're like a, an older guy on the bench, David Perron, uh, who, who you're just like, oh, my God, thank God we have this guy tonight. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I think they relied on a couple of different people in that Chicago Blackhawks game as well, Joe, and that game was just insane in itself after coming off of a – uh, road trip where you won a couple of games, your four-game win streak at the time, but the Chicago Blackhawks come out, and I thought Randy Carricker said it best, the Chicago Blackhawks game, that was Chicago's Stanley Cup championship because they hate St. Louis, they love playing against them, and you want to play spoiler. But the Blues relied on a bunch of different people as they scored six goals in that game, scored from five different goal scorers, including Zach Sanford, and that was just a, a display of passion and determination to finding a way to win that hockey game. Well, and the thing that really stood out about that, Alex, of course, the goals. I mean, that was an exciting game uh, for a broadcaster. I mean, the fans, they got their money's worth. I mean, that was a rivalry <laughs> night against God, yeah. the Blackhawks, you know what I mean? Uh, six to five old school 90s hockey right there at its finest. But what stood out to me was that, again, the Blues started out a little bit sloppy. They get down in that game 3-1. to one. Patrick Kane, the power play for the Blackhawks, was the difference at that point in the game. But Jordan Bennington stood out to me. And you're like probably thinking, how does Jordan Bennington stand out to you in a 6-5 to five game <laughs> where he lets up five goals? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because a 3-1 to one game, and the Blackhawks had a couple opportunities in the second period to make it 4-1 to one and 5-1. to one. But Jordan did not throw in the towel. He did not give up. He did not say, all right, not my night. I'm giving in. He stood tall, man. He was a fighter. I thought he battled hard. He made some terrific saves there in that stretch where the Blackhawks had a two-goal lead. And because he made those timely saves, that's when the Blues started to you know, feed off that energy from their goaltender. They got within one on that Robert Thomas goal. Terrific little nifty move right there. And then Ryan O'Reilly in that third period. To me, that was that spark. 
The Blues got within one. They tie it with that Ryan O'Reilly goal. That's that veteran guy coming through. And then from there, it was just a seesaw affair of goals back and forth, back and forth. Zach Sanford, of course, being the number one star in that game, he had the pair of goals right there. But it was one of those games where I think if there was two more minutes left on the clock, I think the Blackhawks would have tied it, and we probably would have gone overtime. Or if there was five minutes still left on the clock, I think Chicago could have won that game. I mean, that's just the feel of that game where it was just going back and forth, back and forth. Again, exciting hockey, great for the fans, great for the broadcasters, great for you and me, Alex, um, great for the NHL. There's one person probably in that building who absolutely hated it, and that was Craig Berube. Yeah, I agree 100% on that, especially for the way that he sounded afterwards. And you know what? It's kind of a carryover to last night's game when you're talking about the Blackhawks game, and that's the penalty kill, Joe. And, um, you know, Tuesday night against Chicago, they allow three power play goals from Chicago, but they stopped the last one, which is a crucial power play, I think, for the Chicago Blackhawks when they're down and the Blues have come back for the third straight time in that hockey game. And, you know, at the time Tuesday night, that snapped a 15 for 15 streak on the penalty kill, a five-game streak where they were killing off penalties. But again, they stopped the last power play in that uh, in the third period against Chicago on Tuesday. And then you go to last night's game against the against the New York Islanders, and they once again stopped that last goal on the power play. So that at least is signs of improvement after giving up some power play goals. We, I think that was one of the keys of our game last night when we were breaking it down, Alex. For me, it was, I think I call it the resilient PK. Because of the numbers you just threw out there, uh, they were abysmal. And that Chicago game two games ago, they had one opportunity to get a kill in last night's game with the Islanders. They don't do that. Uh, J.G. Pajo gets on the board early in that game. So, again, you would think every reason in the world this penalty kill for the Blues would start to suffer, would start to get fragile, would start to be indecisive. Maybe not so sure stepping over the boards when they got to kill that penalty that Vince Dunn ended up taking late in that game. But they do it. They go out there. They block shots. They're committed to the system. They keep everything to the outside. They let the Islanders have plenty of offensive zone time, but they didn't allow anything in the middle. And that's been the problem with the Chicago game, and it was the problem with the uh, J.G. Pajot goal last night, was that the, the front of the net was too open. Brandon Saad scored a goal there. J.G. Pajot scored a goal there, and they needed to do a better job of protecting the middle. Allow the outside shots. You know your goaltender is going to make that save, and I thought that's what they did in that final penalty kill. And you know what? Uh, hockey's an amazing sport, and it's a lot of fun, and it's amazing how it kind of comes full circle. But Vince Dunn was the player that ended up taking that penalty late. That was probably the longest two minutes of his life as it's a one-goal game. He's in the box with under five minutes to go in the game, and here he is. He comes out. The Blues kill it off. They get back to even strength, and I believe it was his next shift. He comes down right through the gauntlet and lights up that that slap shot that ends up tying that game, which sent into overtime before Colton Pareko ended it. Why do you think that penalty kills gotten away from where it was last year? Because it was top 10 in the NHL for a really long period of time, Joe, and it's the same personnel that's playing and the same coaching staff that's putting the strategy together. Well, I mean, you can make the argument that, Alex, it's a little bit different of a personnel now, only given the fact that you lose Jay Bomeister and now you have Marco Scandella. I mean, that to me, that's a big one because, you know, if you look at that last kill, it was Marco Scandella, Colton Pareko, and then there was Petrangelo and Justin Falk. Those were the four defensemen out on the ice for that kill. There was no Robert Bortuzzo. So, again, personnel has been shifting a little bit. Robert Bortuzzo, of course, played a lot of forward last night, which we should get into a little bit. That was pretty fun to see. Yeah. But, but you know, Justin Falk, Petrangelo in one unit, and then Pareko, and then Scandella. 
Scandella went from Minnesota, then he went to Buffalo, then Montreal. He was gone to West. He's gone to East. He's seen a lot of different systems. He's seen a lot of different coaches. So it's fair for us uh, to say there's going to be an adjustment here. He's going to have to kind of work through uh, uh, Mike Van Ryan, Siva, sitting down, video. This is how we do things. This is where we want your stick. Body positioning. I mean, that's a big one. Uh, for example, if there's a point shot on a power play and the Blues are killing it off, if there's a shot coming down from the point, these these um, these coaches, they, they teach their defensemen to be on a certain side of that shot block. You don't want to be right in front of it because then the goalie can't see the, the puck, obviously. So you have to pick a side based off where those, those those shots are coming from. So that is like just little things that has made this penalty kill so effective in the past. But there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be an adjustment for Marco Scandella. And I know it's just, oh, he's one player. How about the other guys? It's it's a full circle here. This is uh, penalty killing is all about timing. It's all about chemistry, and you read off of each other. Everything is a, is a read off of your partner. Everything is a read off of the forward. If the forward goes, you got to go. If he's patient, you got to back off. If he takes this lane, you got to move your stick to that lane. Everything is um, a read and reaction. And as soon as there's one breakdown where a stick's not in the right spot, or maybe a body position's not in the right spot, or when you're aggressive, when you're supposed to be passive, or when you're passive and you're supposed to be aggressive, I mean, that kind of really does mess everything up. So I think with the new addition of Marco Scandella, we're starting to see a little bit of that learning curve. But I think patiently, the Blues understand what they got to do to correct it. And I do think once they get things figured out, they're going to be a dominant force back there. Sounds like a nightmare just hearing you explain that to me. I'm so glad that I do it on this side <laughs> of the broadcast. Uh, it's Joe Vitale. He is with us for this week in hockey. When we return, the trade deadline is coming past. So we will take a look back at teams that won, teams that lost, and teams that set themselves up solid for a playoff run. We'll touch on that next here on 101 ESPN. Back on a Friday night, Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. Another edition of This Week in Hockey. Happy to have you along with us this evening. And, Joe, we finally made it. The final benchmark, the final checkpoint, I like to say, in the NHL because now you're into the final stretch of hockey, and that's when the trade deadline passes. Light at the end of the tunnel. This was uh, Tuesday morning, the Blues waking up. I should say Monday afternoon, Monday evening. Blues players, every player in the National Hockey League, some good, some bad, but at least you knew exactly where it was. You know, Alex, it's like that, you know, you ever have like a cold or you feel like you have a sinus infection or you're feeling sick and you don't know, you know what I mean? Is it the flu? Is it not the flu? Is it a sinus infection? Maybe I'm just run down. You don't know what it is, but until you see the doctor and until they give you the swab, until they run the test, until they get a little blood work, that's when they know. And you know what? You go into it either way, being confident and comfortable with what the answer is going to be. Cause at least, you know, at least you know what the answer is. Either I don't have the flu or I do have the flu. And then you move on from there. And that's how the trade deadline is. For players, they may not like what's about to happen on Monday, but either way, come Monday evening, they know what it is or what it is. And that's, that's the, the comfortable feeling for players once Monday afternoon has passed. Of course, it has passed. And uh, the Blues' only move really making this year was that Marco Scandella uh, pickup from the Jay Bowmeister incident that happened this year. And and uh, I think a lot of Blues fans loved it. I was certainly excited about it, uh, Alex, because that one move and that only move even though you got some salary cap issue, uh, salary cap um, uh, money right now, but you don't have it pretty soon because on the horizon it appears that number 91 will be back. Yeah, well, and that's the good news, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we move along. But from a player's perspective, Joe, and I asked uh, I asked a couple different guys this after the trade deadline, specifically Ryan O'Reilly, but is there a sense of, okay, this is our group once that trade deadline passes and you know there's no trades? Because I would imagine it instills some confidence in a group of guys knowing that the GM feels like they don't need to go out there and make any moves. 
Exactly. I mean, that's what Doug Armstrong said in his press conference. He didn't want to interfere with the chemistry that was already established with this team. Now, he said the exact same thing last year. Doug Armstrong, like most GMs, I think, he allows the players to play up into the deadline, and their play individually and as a team will dictate what he does or what he doesn't do. And I always refer to this to the people for their quick memory. Two years ago, uh, he did not like the way the Blues were trending. And you send Paul Stastny to Winnipeg. He thought he needed to blow up the party and switch things up. Last year, loved how the Blues were playing. They went on that 11-game win streak, playing terrific hockey leading up to the deadline. The only piece you really had is a depth defenseman didn't really even see a playoff game in, in Michael Delzato. So you don't, you don't make a lot of moves because the team's playing very well. This year, the same way. I don't think Doug Armstrong personally would have done anything assuming Jay Bomeister didn't happen, what happened to him in Anaheim, the unfortunate incident there. The fact is that that did happen, and now he has to go out and get a defenseman. So that's why you bring Marco Scandella in. But it is such a good feeling. Like Ryan O'Reilly was just mentioning, Alex, like you said, we were talking to him. It's such a good feeling to look around the room, and there is this quiet kind of noise happening when you sit in the locker room for the first time after the deadline. You look around, and you're like, all right, this is it. These are our men. These are our guys. This is the pieces to the puzzle that they believe is going to get the job done this year. That is a great feeling because you're looking at these players, not only your teammates, but really good friends, and you feel like this is the battle group. This is the guys that we're going to pull together. We're going to go through great times. We're going to go through bad times, but I wouldn't want to be with anyone else but then beside these guys in this room for the ups and downs, the peaks and the valleys that we're about to face. And that is a reassuring feeling, especially given the fact that so many of these players were on that Stanley Cup championship run last year, and they know exactly what it's going to take to do it again. Yeah, well, and I thought that was a really cool thing to witness and just getting that vibe in the locker room after the trade deadline passes, you could tell that there was just a sense of relief knowing that nobody was traded off of that roster and they stuck with the group that they had. Well, and when you look at it at big picture, Joe, I believe the NHL said that that was the busiest trade deadline in terms of transactions in the last five or six seasons but the part that really struck me was that the central division really didn't do many upgrades colorado acquired vladimir nemesnikov which was just kind of a depth move the winnipeg jets acquired dylan Demello, which was a depth move on their blue line but you didn't see the blues make a big move you didn't see nashville make a big move winnipeg make a big move they kind of stuck with what they had which really surprises me because there are three or four teams I could argue that would be much better for a playoff run if they would have made a big move. You know, I think the team that made the biggest move, Alex, I'll be honest with you, even though it didn't happen on deadline day in the Central Division, I believe was the St. Louis Blues. I think getting Marco Scandella, uh, listen, this is a top two defenseman at the trade deadline. And I know it's He's one of those players I think a lot of Blues fans didn't really hear a lot about because he spent the last few seasons in Buffalo and then Montreal. He got bounced around a little bit, and then their memory maybe was a little bit uh, fuzzy from his his long time there with the Minnesota Wild. And again, that's when he kind of broke into the league. He was still going through a learning curve. This is a terrific defenseman, and this is a terrific pickup for the St. Louis Blues. And I think if you ask any other Central Division team, that they would look at the St. Louis Blues as being the team that improved the most. Again, it didn't happen on deadline day. Doug Armstrong made this move a week earlier. But you're looking at Marco Scandella and Brendan Dillon. To me, those were the top two defensemen. Maybe throw Martinez in there from uh, L.A. Maybe. But I would say Dillon and Scandella were the two best shutdown defensemen on this deadline that if teams acquired them, they would vastly improve. 
Brendan Dillon, of course, from San Jose Sharks. He's going to end up going to the Washington Capitals. That's going to be a big pickup for Washington. Now they've even stacked up and got loads up even more. Marco Scandella here. You look at it, I, I, I don't think they would. Alone, there weren't a ton of options out there. I think this deadline day with all the UFAs being up this summer really came down to more forwards. But uh, the St. Louis Blues certainly have improved the most from a central division aspect. But I do like the Vegas Golden Knights from a Western Conference standpoint. Alex, I think they've improved big time. Yeah, that would be the team, one of the teams in my eyes, Joe, that really won the trade deadline, and that is Vegas. When you think of the fact that they were able to make the move for Alec Martinez to add depth to their defense and really bolster that defense, because I, we've seen it tw- three times already this season, they got a strong defensive unit on their blue line. They add Nick Cousins from the Philadelphia Flyers, who is a depth player as well, but he fits into the mold of what Vegas is wanting to do. And And then the bigger addition in my eyes was adding Robin Leonard for really nothing as they get him from the Chicago Blackhawks. And we were talking about this yesterday morning during the skate. That provides Vegas a little competition, which I feel like always provides Marc-Andre Fleury with a reason to play even better than what he's used to. But if Fleury falters, you have a guy who just won the Vezina Trophy last year. Exactly right. And, you know, it's funny, Alex, about we talk a lot about, you know, inter-team competition, especially in the goaltender position. You look around the National Hockey League, and and it's a trend, but teams that go far, teams that go deep, they have that inter-team goaltender competition where one's always pushing another. You go to the back-to-back situation for the Pittsburgh. Uh, They, of course, had Murray and Fleury. Those guys were going back and forth throughout the whole thing. Holpe and Grubauer when the Capitals won it the, the, the following year, the Blues last year. Jake Allen, Jordan Bennington, that still is a great competition. Jake Allen's playing some terrific backup goaltending hockey right now. Interteam competition. Tuka Rask uh, in Boston right there with um, – who, who's the guy over there in the backup for Boston? I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now. He used to play for the Blues. Uh, it's kind of oh, slipping my head. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Halak, exactly. Uh, another combo, two guys working together. And this has gonna be a, this is going to be a big piece. For Vegas, uh, no disrespect, no disrespect to Subban in Vegas, but I don't know if he was the goaltender that was really pushing uh, Flower forward. You know, a starting goaltender, they're going to play three, four games in a row. Then they're going to take a night off, and they want to sit on the bench, and they want to sit on the bench, and they want to just relax, get their mind away from the game, enjoy a little bit of hockey, and take a break, a mental, emotional break from the game. Starting goaltenders cannot do that. If the backup is not performing the way they need to, because they feel like at any moment they're going to be going back in the game, and I got to put this team solely on my shoulders, it's not a great feeling. Uh, of course, Subban's numbers were not very good this year. They get rid of him. You bring in Robin Leonard. I think this is going to be a big push for Mark Andre Fleury. And as we saw, one game in, as Robin Leonard, the backup, Mark Andre Fleury shuts the door, doesn't allow a goal, gets the shutout. So you already see under Peter DeBoer the the effects of having Robin Leonard. You bring in Nick Cousins, Martinez, both players scored in their Vegas debut. Uh, Peter DeBoer, of course, knows Martinez very well for his time when he was coaching San Jose and Martinez was playing in L.A. They were just a divisional rivalry, uh, like some of the best in hockey. 
So I think that this is a Vegas team that certainly got a lot better. I think from a Western Conference standpoint, probably improved the most uh, next to the St. Louis Blues. What about a team like the Edmonton Oilers, Joe? Are you surprised that the moves that they made or surprised that they did make other moves as they brought in Athanasiu from the Detroit Red Wings? They brought in Mike Green from the Detroit Red Wings. Doesn't surprise me in terms of Ken Holland being familiar with his former players, but it seems like a team that may have wanted to do a little bit more come trade deadline time uh, in terms of kind of bolstering that offense you know Alex I don't know if I like the moves I'll be honest with you I I don't know I think I think Edmonton has got a serious defensive problem mm-hmm. right now yes you got two of some of the best players in the world in Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid but you go out on the deadline and you get Anthony CU from Detroit who is a kid that can absolutely turn on the afterburners. He's got speed, and one day he may be a great player, but he's still in a learning process right now. And then you add uh, Tyler Ennis from the Buffalo Sabres over there. So I, I don't know. I, um, I, just, I think to me that I think Detroit was looking to get rid of. I think Detroit has a lot of dinosaurs on the back end with Green. You have Trevor Daly. I think Steve Eisman is trying to free up some of these older guys so he can really start that rebuild in Detroit. But from an Edmonton standpoint, uh, yes, you bring in some new bodies. Yes, you bring in some new looks. Anthony CU and Ennis both play with Connor McDavid uh, on their debuts right there, and they're still on that top line, which is good to see because you know I don't know if Zach Cassian is a top-line winger for Connor McDavid. I just don't know if you can go that deep. So I like the fact they brought him in. I think they got a little bit better, but I don't think these are game changers. I don't think this is something that you bring in those three bodies and they're going to help Edmonton get over the hump. And then the final one I want to ask you about, Joe, is the team that we just saw last night, the New York Islanders, a team that acquired uh, J.G. Pajot from the Ottawa Senators, a a team that acquired Andy Green, the captain of the New Jersey Devils, to help out their blue line. They're a team that I think can do some damage now come playoff time when you think about those two additions to an already young but feisty group. Well, we saw the effect of J.G. Pajot last night. I mean, he's made an impact as soon as he's come over here um, to the New York Islanders. So to me, uh, Alex, this is a big pickup for Barry Trotz and Lou Lamarillo. They knew exactly what they were going after when they got J.G. Pajot, not only because they picked him up there at the deadline, but they signed him immediately to a six-year contract worth $30 million. So they feel very confident in him that he is going to be this team's uh, third-line center right through the middle. Lou Lamarillo teams, they're built through the middle. They're built through the center position. That's the way he's always done things. And J.G. Pajot has been a spectacular addition already. Two games in, he scored in each of his first two goals. But he's just not a goal scorer, even though he's putting up great numbers this year. He's great on the faceoff circle. He was given, he was dealing Ryan O'Reilly a fit earlier in that game last night, uh, as well as a penalty killer, a good depth forward, a good pickup for the New York Islanders. I think they really got better uh, at the deadline. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. It's This Week in Hockey. When we come back, a uh, big story in the NHL took place earlier this week, and that's uh, somebody from the fans, or somebody from the stands, I should say, making their NHL debut. So we'll touch on that next here on This Week in Hockey, a 101 ESPN. Friday night, This Week in Hockey, Alex and Joe with you. Blues back in action tomorrow night as they'll welcome in the Dallas Stars. Final time those two teams will play against each other 
here in the regular season, and we'll talk about a player that could be returning for the St. Louis Blues in the near future in just a bit. But now I want to talk about, Joe, the story around the NHL and get your thoughts on it because, frankly, there's a lot of different opinions going on around the NHL. I've heard a couple of former NHLers in terms of analyst style say that they hate this and it needs to change. And then, of course, you get the fan perspective that we all witnessed, and that's the emergency goaltender situation. So earlier this week, David Ayers, who is a Zamboni driver for the Toronto Maple Leafs, he was called upon in a game between the Maple Leafs and the Carolina Hurricanes as the Hurricanes lost both of their goaltenders. Ayers comes into the game, and he pretty much shuts the door to the Toronto Maple Leafs for the remainder of that hockey game, which is about a period and a half. I think he came in mid-second period, played until the end, and he wins the game for the Carolina Hurricanes. First off, just your initial thoughts from it. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I don't know. It's a great story, Alex. I was excited when I heard about it. As soon as I found out about it on Twitter, I initially tuned into the game. I think the viewership of the Toronto-Carolina uh, matchup has never been higher. Not typically a great rivalry. But listen, you got a 42-year-old Zamboni driver who's playing in the National Hockey League against the Toronto Maple Leafs and wins the game. I mean, this is stuff movies movies are made about. And I know we'll get into it quickly about you know what maybe could be done or you know, better, I guess, moving forward in the National Hockey League. But I don't know. I think it's an exciting story. I know you made someone else's day. I think you gave a lot of hope to a lot of people, and you brought a lot of smiles to people's faces. So initially, I got I got all kind of warm and fuzzy when I heard about the story. Of course, then he got the win, and it just kind of took off from there. Terrific guy. He speaks very well. It seems like it was a, a wonderful experience for him. The funniest part of it all was, I guess, uh, apparently the next day, he was out there practicing with the Toronto Maple Leafs in, in that kind of relief position, uh, playing the uh, I guess skating with the team that he just beat the day prior. It's a crazy twist of events. It really was. And he was well-spoken for himself, Joe. And I thought that was really cool seeing him in the media. You know, Rod Brendamore gave a great speech after the game just in the locker room. And as his team teammates were kind of celebrating with him. But that's the part that gets me so much. This guy's 42 years old, Joe. It's rare that you see 42 goaltenders even play still in the NHL. But this guy comes out. He wins a hockey game against a very good Toronto Maple Leafs team and kind of slams the door for the Carolina Hurricanes. And from that point, you're watching it and you're like, okay, this is just an awesome story. And I was in the same boat as you. But then you hear the other side of it. And I've heard a couple of NHL players talk about this, a couple of former NHL players, I should say, that are doing analyst work in TSN, talking about how that, you know, it's bad for the game when somebody just comes in from the stands and jumps into a hockey game. But my question is, why is that bad for the game? I guarantee you so many people were watching that game once they saw that emergency goaltender was in. You know what, Alex, I agree. I, I don't think it's bad for the game. I think these people should shut up personally, because this doesn't happen very often. I mean, I think the last time this happened was, I think, in 2018. Uh, I think, like, a 36-year-old accountant. Remember the Chicago game? I think you are playing the Winnipeg Jets. That kid uh, comes in the Chicago relief. Yeah. Uh, Foster. Scott Foster. Scott Foster, name, yep. Scott Foster comes in. He's a 36-year-old accountant in Chicago. Comes in, shuts the door on the Winnipeg Jets, and the Chicago Blackhawks win that game. I mean, people still talk about that. So that was 2018. Uh, of course, just you know, a year, year and a half later, this happens one more time. But I, I don't know if this happens, you know, maybe once every three to four years. I know it's happened a couple times over the last couple of years. But how often does your starter go down 
And then, of course, your backup go down. Uh, a completely different angle to go on this, too, is if you're Peter Morazic and you're the backup situation. And I know it's a bang-bang play. And I know you're not thinking about, oh, I'm the backup. i got to be careful. But he goes out and plays that puck. And that was an aggressive play, given the fact that you don't have anyone else behind you uh, to come in in relief for your team. Of course, Clifford comes in, runs into him, and he's got to leave for a concussion protocol. Again, I- I'm, not, I'm not judging Morazic because he's a hockey player and he made a hockey play. He's not thinking about all the extra stuff going on. But, again, I think this is good for the game. Some, some people have been talking about this, which is an interesting angle. I think teams should use a player on the bench to come in relief, uh, which is exciting, I guess. Uh, but keep in mind, general managers and coaches, the league is not going to like that because of injuries. I mean, injuries just stand out. This is a goaltender position. You don't move typically how you move when you play hockey. And it's, you see a lot of goaltenders who play so long – they still deal with groin injuries, hip injuries. I mean, you're bent down in a low position. This is this is a body positioning issue where players, if they put on the pads, let's just take, for example, if Robert Bortuzzo goes in there and plays goalie because Bennington and Jake Allen go down in the game. I'm telling you right now, if a player ever gets hurt doing that and is out in a long-term situation, that'll be the end of it. So to me, that's why teams, general managers, will always probably shut that down because it is a safety issue when you bring a player from the bench into the situation. Now, that's what you do in youth hockey. You know, in youth hockey, you're playing peewee hockey around St. Louis. Your goalie goes down, someone strap it on, and you understand there. But we're talking about millions of dollars. You're talking about superstars in the National Hockey League. So I don't know if that's really the right way to go about it. I just think it's something that just happens so infrequently. that, And it's such a cool story when it does happen. And the last two goalies that have done it have won games, and we're still talking about it. Uh, to me, it's it's exciting for the game. I think it should stay in the game. And you know what? Shame on the Toronto Maple Leafs for not winning that game. It's your fault. It's no one else's fault. Right. Well, and that's the thing. It's like you didn't put an awful lot of shots on goal towards the guy. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, come on. You got a guy who's 42 who's never played in the NHL before, and you only put a total of 16 shots towards him in a period and a half. I mean, if I'm the head coach at that time of the Toronto Maple Leafs, I'm saying, guys, I don't care where you're at on the ice put the puck towards the net, right? Like, yeah. come up with I mean, something. You hear about it all the time. Hey, backup goalies in tonight, boys. Shoot them. Test them early. I mean, here, we got a 42-year-old Zamboni <laughs> driver in the net. Let's shoot the puck, boys. Like, And they did in that second period. I think two of the first shots went in, actually. Yeah. But then that third period, you know, that third period, he completely shut down that door. I know the Toronto Maple Leafs are sitting pretty comfortably. Right now, they're in the third in the Eastern Conference with 76 points. If if they were a wild card situation, which you know it, it could happen in the near future, they're only two points ahead of the New York Islanders, who's two are chasing them down. But if they were out of a playoff spot or on a wild card situation, I think I think that the Toronto Maple Leafs fans and I think the media would have even hit this even harder on the head. Or let's say, for example, they were six or seven points out of a playoff spot, and these are the two points that really could have helped them get over that hump. And when you're looking back at the end of the season, again. They're still they're still near the top of the Eastern Conference, so they're in a good spot. But uh, God forbid if they were about eight or ten points out of that wild card area, this would have uh, this would have stirred even more emotion, I think, from Toronto. But you know what? 
I'm not from Toronto, and I don't really care. And most people <laughs> aren't from Toronto. They don't really care, so I think it's exciting. Most people aren't happy about Toronto people in general, so they don't care. And I tell you what, that was a rabbit hole that was well worth going down after all of that stuff happened, was just looking at the Toronto Maple Leafs fans just losing their complete minds over the fact that a 42-year-old backup goaltender just defeated them in the game. And here's my only thought on the solution to it, Joe, and maybe this would appease some people and not others. I don't know. But it, you mentioned Scott Foster, and he was the previous case of a emergency goaltender needing to be used. And this was a guy who played hockey in college. Now, granted, it was back in the early 2000s when he did that. But, you know, he played in college. David Ayers, at least from my knowledge, wasn't really a hockey goaltender. He was just somebody who was around the game and loved to do pickup hockey. Maybe find an emergency backup for each team that has played college hockey. But even then, I think you're still going to disappoint some people when it comes to the game if those players are called upon. Yeah, you know, again, I think that it just doesn't happen all that often. I know some some people I was talking to at the rink yesterday evening, Alex was saying, well, maybe every team should carry a third goalie, whether he's in college, like you were saying or not. But, you know, he, he's a person that lives in every city and he's yeah. a third goalie and he's able to provide for each team uh, kind of like that. Or maybe he travels with the team. But then you're just dealing with a, a kid. I mean, any, any guy's dream to be basically the third back of an NHL goalie. I mean, think of think of the havoc. Think of the the uh, the disaster that would be on the road when you have a third goalie who never plays who's just out with the boys every night. I mean, that would just be sounds like a be, sounds like a waste of money too. Best option, either. You know, again, I just don't think it happens all that often. I just don't know if any drastic measures need to be taken. And for me, again. We're in entertaining business. We're here to entertain people. And what is more entertaining than having a 36-year-old accountant beat the Winnipeg Jets? What, what, what is more entertaining than having a 42-year-old Zamboni driver beating the Toronto Maple Leafs? To me, if it doesn't happen all that often, I think it's good for the game. I think it should stay. And then it also makes the team that lost to that backup goaltender that's an accountant maybe reassess some things when it comes to their organization moving forward. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Speaking of entertainment, a 10-year anniversary of the Golden Goal. We'll touch on that. The former teammate of Joe Vitale next here on 101 ESPN. Final time here on This Week in Hockey. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you this hour. It's the final time. we still got a whole other hour of hockey talk coming your way. Plenty more blues conversation to get into and a really cool story around the NHL of a player returning to the game. So we'll touch on that in our next hour. But, Joe, I want to talk about a historical moment in the NHL that took place a 10 years ago last night, it's a former teammate of yours, and it was the golden goal in the Olympics by Sid the Kid, Sidney Crosby, of course, beating Team USA. And it's one of those goals that I think you everyone remembers where they were at, kind of like the TJ Oshie and the shootout in Sochi. I remember that Sid the Kid goal because my dad and I drove all the way back from Georgia. We dropped my sister off in college that weekend, and we scripted our drive home that night, so we made it home by puck drop for that game, which kind of goes to show you how big of a moment that was. You know, there's not a lot of moments, I think, in sports, Alex, certainly that you can say that where were you when that happened? And I think that was one of those goals that certainly for – not only people from USA or Canada, but people from around the world. Any, any hockey fan would say that I remember where I was 
when Sidney Crosby scored that goal. Now, what's interesting about that goal, uh, of course, being teammates with Sidney at the time, a lot of players in the Olympics, I remember him talking about that goal when he got back to Pittsburgh. So the, the Olympics were over. The t- all the players report back to their t- respective teams shortly after. And I remember him talking about it. And it was a really cool story behind that goal. And if people remember that goal, uh, or if you don't, go check it out on YouTube. Really cool, cool goal in the sense that there was nothing spectacular about it. It wasn't like it was a great A chance, certainly not a breakaway, not a two-on-one, nothing, nothing that you would think that this is how a game's going to end. It's a pretty harmless play right in the corner there. I believe it was Jerome McGinley in the corner with him. Nita Ryder, of course, is on the ice as well. And it was a puck kind of around that low dot area, right just above the goal line. Uh, 99 out of 100 times, I think Sidney Crosby would just pull up and look for a different play, look for a better option. Or 100 times out of 100, I think any player would just grab that puck, maybe take it on the net and, and look for a cycle, look for a point shot, or something else that's, I guess, more of a threat, I'm trying to say. But that puck just underneath that dot, uh, Sidney Crosby's got his head down. He finds that puck, it squirts out of the corner, and without even looking at the net, without even picking his head up, he just throws it right at that cage. And when he does that, he kind of stunned I think, everyone in that building. And what's interesting about it is he talked about what he used to do as a kid with his trainer. They used to do a drill when he was younger in Nova Scotia. They would put 30 pucks in the offensive zone. The trainer would get on the clock and he would start it. And Sid's job was to put every puck in the net as quickly as possible. And he did that by not picking up his head. He would just find a puck, shoot it. And what that whole drill taught him was that when he's doing this rapid fire, it's helping him have more awareness of what he's at on the ice with up because when you pick your head up of course uh, that's time away that crucial time that can prevent you or or from scoring a goal so he did that drill growing up and he talked about why he shot that puck even though no one in the goaltender and miller would have assumed that he that felt like it was just instinctual it was through that repetition of doing that drill as a kid that really just seemed to just take over in that moment when that puck squirted out of the corner head down just throws it at the net, harmless shot on the ice through the five hole, and of course uh, shocked the hockey world right there as Sidney Crosby gave Canada uh, that gold medal, gold medal in Vancouver. I mean, something the storybooks are written about. It's so cool to think about it, and that's an incredible story, Joe. Just to think of the way that Sidney Crosby was able to kind of pick apart his defense and pick apart a goaltender in a play that you just broke down. And the part that always intrigues me when it comes to the Olympics, and I know you were a teammate on the tail end of that season with Sid the Kid, Joe, but what's that like within a group of players on a team that are going through the Olympics and obviously you're representing different countries, you're representing, you're part of different countries, so you're representing different teams, but then you have to come back together as a team towards the end of the season, and that can switch things up majorly, I'm assuming. Well, it's interesting, Alex. I'm glad you bring that up because there were a lot of players that were involved with the Olympics that year in in Vancouver that were part of the Pittsburgh Penguins team. In fact, uh, the one story that just comes to mind right away is is Brooks Orpik. Crosby, of course, our captain in Pittsburgh. Brooks Orpik was our alternate captain. But at that time, Brooks Orpik was a very vocal uh, piece, of a huge leader. So you're looking at two leaders in the Olympics. They're going head-to-head, both representing their country, one Canada, one USA. Of course, Canada wins that game by the Sidney Crosby goal. But what's fascinating about it as far as how it connects with your teammates on the NHL team, uh, interesting story Brooks Orpik told me, uh, and this kind of sums up, I think, the character of Sidney Crosby. 
after Canada wins that game, all the players at the airport, they're all going home. All the athletes at the airport, for that matter, skiers, uh, hockey players, sledders, whatever, they're all there, and everyone's supporting their medals. Everyone's wearing their medals, whether you're hockey or, or bobsledding or whatever. Sidney Crosby, instead of wearing his gold medal, he finds himself on the same commercial flight to Pittsburgh with Brooks Orpik. Of course, both their families are on board, and Brooks Orpik being the loser the night before, and Sidney Crosby, of course, winning. But Sidney Crosby, instead of wearing his gold medal like everyone else was doing, he had that thing just stuffed in his duffel bag, and he kept it there the entire flight, which uh, meant a lot to Brooks Orpik, who was still obviously feeling uh, some dwelling from the night before and losing that game, being so close in overtime to a gold medal. I mean, this is a lifetime achievement within one bounce from getting it. Of course, he loses it. Uh, you can only imagine the feeling, but then to have your captain on your NHL squad coming back with you and noticing that he did not wear his medal simply out of respect for you and what you're going through. Uh, to me, that just sums up the character, the leadership qualities uh, of, of Sidney Crosby, not only as a player, but of course being one of the, the greatest human beings I've ever, I've ever been around in the hockey world. Yeah, well, that sums him up uh, 110% what kind of player he is. And it's just uh, it's just an interesting dynamic. And to go back 10 years ago and think about that Olympic goal, gosh, can you can you believe that that's 10 years ago, Joe? Man, it just seems like it seems like two years ago. I know right. it sounds crazy. It seems like two years ago, but you know, I know with 2022 uh, Olympics in Beijing, the NHL, the NHLPA, uh, the Olympic Committee—they're also kind of working this out. I-, I love seeing the NHL players participate in it for this reason. I really hope it gets worked out. But you're right, Alex. Ten years ago, it goes by quickly, uh, and having the NHL players there represent their country—it just—it it are just memories, like you said when we started the segment you remember exactly where you were when it happened. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. Let's wrap up the first hour of This Week in Hockey. We'll come back with plenty more hockey talk the next hour here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Hour number two of This Week in Hockey. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. Don't forget Blues back in action tomorrow night against the Dallas Stars. It's a 7 o'clock puck drop, a 6 o'clock Mitsubishi Electric pregame show presented by First Community, a 6.30 BMW of West St. Louis pregame skate. Joe, you and Curbs talked about something on pregame last night that I wanted to bring back up, and that was the 11 forward 7 defenseman that the Blues used in the game last night against the Islanders. But you got you guys got to talking a little bit about Robert Bortuzzo playing the forward position as he was that seventh defenseman and Craig Burry wanted to use him more for the penalty kill. He played four minutes and seven seconds, but those four minutes and seven seconds included some penalty kill time but included him playing on the wing with Ivan Barbashev and Oscar Sundquist and a couple of scoring chances to top it all off. Well, it was amazing because when the game started, Alex, I'm sitting here thinking and they're going to use him in relief for defense. They're going to get him out there, get him some shifts on defense, and certainly use him on the penalty kill. But I think that, you know, he started the game a couple shifts on offense. I think Craig Burby would have liked to use him a lot more on the penalty kill, but there weren't a lot of penalties. In fact, uh, just the two that the Blues needed to kill off, and he didn't even find himself on that final one, um, given the fact he had played a lot of offense. So you look at him starting the game, use him in the penalty kill situation. There weren't a lot of penalties. Of course, uh, Wes McCauley did a terrific job in the game last night letting the boys play. So they got him some shifts on the offensive side of things. And you know what? I thought he was great. I think it was his first game to play any kind of forward position in the National Hockey League. Craig Berube put him with four different forwards, all very straight line, 
North predictable, simple forwards. Ivan Barbashev, Oscar Sunquist on one line where they had a couple scoring opportunities in that second period, like you mentioned. And then he actually started the game with Alexander Steen and Tyler Bozak. Again, veteran guys who play the right way. So Craig Bruby wasn't about to put him out there with some young guys, maybe that have some turnover still in their in their genes, but they had some simple players to play along with them. I thought he was effective on the forecheck. I thought they used him down low very well. That one shift really stood out in the second period where they had some good offensive zone time, and he capped it all off by making a nice little spin right in front of the net. A backhand shot, of course, he puts it right in the gut of Thomas Grice, but it was close. So, again, 11 forwards, seven defensemen. You see coaches use them differently. Sometimes you see that seventh defenseman just stay on the back end, and they kind of use them uh, on, on the defensive side depending on injuries on the back end. But with everyone healthy last night, Craig Brewer gave him some good looks there on the offensive side of things, and I thought he did a great job. Do you think that at the beginning of the game, Joe, and I know you mentioned this after the first period of a period that the Blues really didn't have that much offense and a lot of shot, a lot of shots. Do you think that that 11-7 forward had a little effect on the Blues? You know what? I think it had a little bit of effect simply from a standpoint that Craig Berube couldn't run four lines as effectively and as consistently as he's used to because here you are thinking, where do I put Bortuzzo out there because he's never done this before? Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, so like if Sammy Blay was on that fourth line, for example, you know exactly what you're going to get from Sammy Blay or Mackenzie McEachern. You can put them out there in neutral zone faceoff positions where they're going to win a faceoff, dump it in, chip it, and go on offense. That's the confidence you have from your coach. So I do think to start the game, Craig Bruby was a little hesitant to run for uh, simply because of that reason, which had a little bit of an effect. Also keep in mind – and this is something I mentioned to Curbs, whenever you have an 11 forward, seven defenseman setup, you got to be prepared to which forward you're going to be double shifting. Now, it has a completely different dynamic. And, and David Prom was the one player for me to watch, and he played a lot of shifts there with Ivan Barbashev and uh, Oscar Sundquist. So for, for David Perron, he's on the bench thinking, maybe I need to conserve my energy a little bit more. Maybe I can't extend my shifts as much with Robert Thomas and Zach Sanford. Instead of the 45, 50 second shifts, it's, it's 35 seconds. I'm going to get off. I'm going to rest my body because I may be getting double shifted. I'm sure it was a conversation that Craig Burby had with David Perron. So it does certainly mess up the rhythm. I, I do not expect given what happened last night and how sloppy the start was for Craig Berube to do that again anytime in the near future. I, I do think it had a little bit of an effect where maybe the Blues did get away from the game, especially in that first period, as Mike Van Ryan said, was a very sloppy period. Uh, timing was off. Chemistry was just not there. So I do agree with the, the assistant coach and Mike Van Ryan on his comments. But you did talk about this on the postgame show and the pregame show, and I thought it was an interesting topic, which is why I wanted to bring it back up. When do you think we'll see a coach who has the cojones, I guess the lack of cojones, a better yeah. word, uh, to look at a team and say, I'm going to go three defensemen in this scenario rather than two defensemen? You know what, Alex? I think that what we're going to see, any any big change like this that would ever happen in the National Hockey League, it's got to start small, but it's got to start somewhere. Right. So I think what we were talking about last night was when are we going to see a defensive faceoff situation where you have two forwards and three defensemen out there? Of course, you're not going to use it necessarily in the offensive zone and probably not in the neutral zone. But if, if you're in a shutdown position in the game, if you're up by a goal or you're up by two goals and it's late, and it's a defensive zone faceoff. Throw out your best faceoff guy. Throw out a dependable Oscar Sundquist winger. But then if you have three just steady, hardcore shutdown defensemen, 
Like, why not throw them out there for the faceoff? Maybe, let's, for example, you have Colton Pareko and Marco Scandella, uh, the defensemen, who are going to be out there in those situations. Why not put Petrangelo out there? Because what's going to happen is, in a defensive situation, when when you are battling down low in your D zone and you're protecting, you have three guys down low anyway. Usually it's two defensemen and a centerman. So why not just have three defensemen down there? They know how to bat a lot of corners very well. They know how to battle in front of the net. They know situations around their crease and the help corners in town. So you have three guys who are very good at battling down low and playing defensive hockey. I think some someday we will see a coach do that, and it will be kind of like, huh, that makes a lot of sense. And then from there we'll see how it evolves. But uh, we were joking last night, I, I would love to – I think that in 100 years we'll look back on the game, and I would like to think some aspect we will say, oh, remember when they they ran three fours and two defensemen? Now look how the game has changed. So it, there certainly will be some sort of evolution, and I always get giddy thinking about how the game will change over time. Uh, but that's an area where I, I still think coaches coaches can use that. I mean, that is a valuable thing when you are in a shutdown defensive um, moment in the game, and instead of throwing out three fours, two defensemen, throw three defensemen out there and two dependable wingers, and I don't know, just see what happens. Well, I, I think it, it always it, it takes somebody who wants to try something different. I mean, think back to in the NHL when you know the first time the goalie was decided to be pulled for an extra attacker. People probably saw that and like, are you insane? You're only down <laughs> by a goal and you just emptied right. your net. But it's kind of those trendsetters. But the funny thing about that is, Joe, and I was thinking about this last night after you had mentioned it, if you look at the NHL athlete today compared to before, you know, defensemen are different than what they used to be. They used to be the stay-at-home, big, heavy, hard-hitting style defensemen, but a lot of the guys now can play offense just as well as they can play defense. A perfect example is Robert Bortuzzo in that backhanded goal that he had last year in the playoffs. So it's not uncommon to think, well, what if we had three defensemen out there, but that one just kind of chipped in every once in a while offensively? I mean, think of a Dustin Bufflin or think of a Brent Burns. When, or even a Colton Pareko would be a great example of this. Think about putting a guy like that in front of the net on the offensive side, but he has the speed and the capability of going onto the defensive side of the game and eliminating the opposition. Well, and another another trend that just came to mind, Alex, when you were talking, was not only pulling the goalie, but how about the, the first coach that said, we got a power play, we're not going to throw three forwards and two defensemen out there. Right. We're going to put five forwards out there. I mean, five yeah. forwards. You see that in the National Hockey League, where now teams are going with three guys down low and two forwards at the point. Of course, it, it's a situation where they obviously don't have a lot of confidence in the, in, in the offensive minded defenseman like a Justin Falk or a Vince Dunn or a Colton Pareko now maybe you just have a shutdown group of six guys that just defend very hard and obviously you're on the power play and you need offense so you're going to try to figure out ways to get the puck to the net and put it in the net so that's why they go to it but but there are certain trends and there are certain things that you look back over the last 50 plus years of hockey the game has changed a lot so five fours on the power play I don't think there's any reason to doubt that one day we will see three defensemen or even four defensemen with one forward out there 
late in games, protecting the lead, especially given six on five situations where the opposing team pulls the goalie. Now I'm having like these visions of just obscure things to happen in a hockey game where somebody's just ballsy <laughs> enough to do it. Like imagine having somebody, and this is like NHL video game style. Imagine if somebody decided rather than pull the goalie and get the extra attacker, what if we use the goalie as the extra attacker? I mean, imagine putting a goalie with all of that gear in front of another goalie as a screener or a deflection. Yeah, that would be something. Of course, they have to change the rule. I don't believe uh, goalies are allowed to pass the red line at right. this point. But that would be that would be that would almost be a little circusy, but also kind of fun and cool. And I don't know. We'll we'll see one day. Okay, that's cool, Joe. Just you know, shoot down my entire vision that I just came up with in the middle of this segment. No big that's deal. my nicest that's my nicest way of saying alex is a terrible idea it's my nicest way of saying alex you understand nothing about hockey i award you <laughs> no points and may god have mercy on your soul <laughs> great we are great all, we are all it. dumber now because of what you just brought to the table may god have mercy on your soul okay but now we are we are all smarter for that awesome reference you just threw out so you you backed it up okay see i sometimes i go the, the opposite direction where i make things worse made that better as we go to a break and i'm going to end on a positive note it's this week in hockey he's joe vitale i'm alex ferrario we will come back doug armstrong we've already talked about it as acquired a defenseman this season and marco scandella but the track record of doug armstrong's acquisition of defensemen has been insane so we'll touch on that next here on 101 espn back in on this week in hockey alex ferrario joe vitale with you as the stretch run of the season is intact for the st louis blues as they wrapped up the game number 65 last night against the new york islanders so 17 games left in the regular season before we hit postseason and if the playoffs were to start today Blues would be taking on the Arizona Coyotes in the first round of the playoffs, but a lot of things can change between now and game one of that first round of the playoffs. And Joe, we, we've talked about Marco Scandella a lot already today. We talked about him last week when the Blues acquired him uh, pre-trade deadline, but it got me thinking, and Dan Betlock brought this up to me earlier this week. If you go back and look at the track record or the trend history of Doug Armstrong and acquiring defensemen, this guy knows how to scout the talent. His team knows how to scout the talent when it comes to players on the blue line for St. Louis. And just to kind of go a step backwards, and we don't have to go too far back, but we can if we need to. You know, if you think about players like, of course, Marco Scandella that the Blues acquire, or you think about the Robert Bortuzzo acquisition for the St. Louis Blues when they got him from the Penguins, or the Carl Gunnarsson, or the Jay Bowmeister. This guy has been able to go out there come free agency, come trade deadline, or just come middle of the season when he knows his team needs help, and he goes out there and he finds a defenseman that fits into the system and plays to the level that the Blues need him to. Well, I think that in the play into the system, which I think, first of all, is the winning system. I mean, obviously, you have to start with the system as far as the system being a defensively savvy team, strong team big defenseman who can move the puck, that can box out, play physical, block shots, and play a very strong defensive game. So once you have the system in play as far as your Doug Armstrong of what we believe is going to take in the Central Division to win the division and go after a cup, once you have the system, then it's just about finding the personnel. And I think this is where a lot of teams and general managers go wrong, Alex, where maybe the system is wrong in the first place, maybe maybe this the culture is an issue before 
before you put the pieces together. Because if the culture is not set and the identity of this team and direction you want to go on is not set, then you're putting the wrong pieces. You're getting the wrong personnel. You're getting the wrong players. You're drafting the wrong guys, and you're getting the wrong guys in the deadline. So that's the problem. Look at the Edmonton Oilers for a flip side example right here. A team built around first-round draft picks who were skilled forwards, high-octane high offense uh, that can razzle and dazzle. They can shampoo defensemen like you've never seen before. And, of course, they're going to bring people to the edge of their seat, but they don't defend. They haven't been able to defend for the past 10 years. And even getting the greatest player in the world in Connor McDavid, number one overall that year, certainly I don't believe is going to get them over the hump because they just cannot defend. Now, Doug Armstrong, which I believe he's asserted himself in the right direction of this team because we are going to build our team around defending first. If you can't defend, you can't win championships. So that is the mindset here in St. Louis. So once the mindset is set, what players are we going to go out and get that can fulfill these roles as far as defending first hockey? You get Colton Pareko. Again, we talked about him earlier in the segment, but uh, a young kid, I mean, only uh, still 26 years old in his right. career, uh, being up University of Alaska in Fairbanks and WCHA. I mean, a league that not a lot of scouts really go up that far deep to find. You find him, spend a little bit of time in the minors before he's blossomed into one of the best NHL shutdown defensemen in the league. Uh, of course, uh, getting Justin Falk this year, uh, we're all seeing how much depth is going to play a role, especially on that right side with Justin Falk. Carl Gunnarsson, uh, you mentioned him. Uh, there, there are people in this league that I have talked to who have come up to me and said, Carl Gunnarsson still plays in the National <laughs> Hockey League. Like, they're, they're amazed. They're amazed by it. But not only is he still playing – He's playing very effectively. He, he He's not a very noticeable guy. He, he's not someone that jumps out at you on the score sheet, certainly. But even when you're watching the game, you're like, you don't really notice him, which is exactly the style of game that he needs to play. And this coach and this general manager needs him to play. He needs to play very unnoticed hockey. He just needs to make the simple chip, the simple play, the simple pass, get out there for 30 seconds, and get the heck off the ice. That's exactly what he does. So, again, Armstrong has found defensemen that maybe is a little bit of an undercurrent of where you don't really notice them necessarily uh, because they're not flashy. Like like maybe Robert Bortuzzo, uh, another example who's not really flashy, but they get the job done in the defensive zone. And that is that core of defense that he has built around that without, they would do not win a Stanley Cup championship last year. I love coaches' comments when we go on the road. And Travis Green from the Vancouver Canucks, his comment always sticks out to me when they asked him about the St. Louis Blues. He said, "This we are looking at the greatest defensive group in the National Hockey League, not only from defending, but getting it up in the offense from a defending standpoint in front of their net. They box out hard. They communicate well in the D zone. They do everything right. And that is a huge credit to Doug Armstrong, his scouting staff, and everyone involved of putting the right pieces in play. Do you remember who Carl Gunnarsson was acquired for? Oh, man, let me think about this for a second. I had to go back and look uh, at this. What, what year was it? It was 2014. It was June 28th. 2014, June 28th. Uh, I, I can't think off the top of my head. He was traded to Toronto. Or I'm sorry. He was traded to St. Louis from Toronto along with a draft pick that turned out to be Ville Husso for Roman Polak. Nah, that's right. That's right. Fourth round. So it was a fourth. So Billy Huso was a fourth rounder in 2014. Yep. And so basically, it was a Roman Polak for Carl Gunnarsson trade a with pick. a with a draft pick. Yep. Wow. You think about that. I mean, Roman Polak, he's still a Clydesdale in this league. Though. I mean, he's still he he's still moving around pretty good. I think that's an even swap if you go Carl Gunnarsson for Roman Polak, but then throwing Billy Huso, who we've seen a little bit of and yep. they're really high on. 
if this becomes your 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 solid backup next year, now he signed that one year extension already. And a one way deal. An, a one way NHL salary deal. So you have to think that the future is looking good for Billy Huso as far as being up here in this organization. Uh, if we see a good, strong backup in Billy Huso and Carl Gunnarsson, I know he's got one more year after this year under contract with the St. Louis Blues. If he continues to go at his rate, again, another terrific trade under the regime of Doug Armstrong. Well, and that's the thing that gets me when I was thinking about this, Joe, is, I mean, think of that trade. Roman Polak was a fan favorite in St. Louis at the time. I mean, he was through those those grinding years when no winning was happening and they were rebuilding with T.J. Oshie and Patrick Berglund and David Perron. And Doug Armstrong makes a deal to trade away a Roman Polak, a fan favorite when fans are upset of losing him. And they bring in this guy, Carl Gunnarsson, thinking, who's this guy supposed to be? Flash forward six years from now, he's a Stanley Cup champion. He's playing on the top pairing with Alex Petrangelo. That's the that's the scouting and that's the analytical side of Doug Armstrong and his staff that can break down the players that they acquire. I'll give you another one that was such a great move at the time. People may not look at it. It was acquiring Jordan Leopold in 2013 from the Buffalo Sabres. They acquired him in March. It was a trade deadline acquisition for for uh, Doug Armstrong, but. They upgraded their blue line, and they tightened things up. So Jordan Leopold's a part of a group that has a young Alex Petrangelo, a Carlo Koliakovo, and then the next or the next day, he acquires Jay Bowmeister from the Calgary Flames. So he's always been able to evaluate that talent on the blue line and kind of fit into the system that he wants his coaching staff to have. Well, and I think that it hasn't always been easy. Like you mentioned, the Roman Polak for Carl Gunnarsson, I'm sure there was probably some second guessing uh, on their end about that because Roman Polak, for all the reasons we just mentioned, Alex, he plays that epitome St. Louis Blues style. Yeah. He's hard to play against. He's huge. He's physical. He boxes out. Uh, he's a tough player to get through. And if you're a forward playing against him, you better keep your freaking head up because he'll take it off. So all the things he does really does sum up Blues hockey. So to kind of get rid of Roman Polak and then to pick up a Carl Gunnarsson, who's uh, not nearly as physical, not nearly as hard to play against, but talk about a puck mover, a guy that just moves the puck so effectively and so so fluently, but he never puts himself out of play. Carl Gunnarsson, the partner of Alex Petrangelo, throughout uh, the entire stretch nearly of the playoffs last season, who just stays put, stays back. He plays a very conservative style of hockey, which allows this team's captain to jump in on the offense, to take chances, to maybe toe drag at the blue line, because you know Carl is going to be such a good safety net and he has just been such a terrific partner there for Alex Petrangelo. Uh, there's no question as far as, as why Doug Armstrong brought him back for an extra two years after they win the Cup. The only thing that's kind of played Carl Gunnarsson in the past, knock on wood, is he's had to deal with a lot of injuries right. um, towards the end of his career now. But if he can stay healthy – uh, and in this lineup, throughout this stretch, this is going to be a big piece for the Blues. And then you think about the Robert Bortuzzo deal as well. Again, another fan favorite, Ian Cole at the time, that fans loved being around, and they loved the, how hard he played on the ice. You flip him for Robert Bortuzzo, and it's Stanley Cup champion who just got a two-year extension to stay with St. Louis. So again, it, it's just those gritty style of defensemen that Doug Armstrong acquires that seem to have a fit in St. Louis. And again, I understand these are just kind of complementary pieces to Alex Petrangelo and Colton Pareko, players that the Blues drafted, Vince Dunn, another one. But those complementary pieces sometimes are the ones that other teams have issues trying to find for their team. 
Well, and the, the Robert Bortuzzo thing, you know, it, it maybe didn't look so great right away, but right. over time we see how effective it's been. But, you know, if, you, you know, you trade him for Ian Cole. Ian Cole goes to Pittsburgh. Of course, Bortuzzo comes here. Ian Cole wins back-to-back championships with the Pittsburgh Penguins. So you can almost make the argument that the Blues lost that trade. Uh, but now Ian Cole, he's still very effective in Colorado. I mean, to me, this is a very even swap for Doug Armstrong and the St. Louis Blues. Uh, I think he certainly has won a lot of them in a landslide. This one, this one's a good hockey trade where I think each team got exactly what they needed. Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, of course, get cold. They win in 16. They win in 17. And now uh, hindsight 2020, looking back from this day, moving backward, uh, the, the St. Louis Blues win with Robert Bortuzzo, who was a big, big piece to this puzzle last year of how these Blues team got over the hump. Of course, he scored that big uh, goal in San Jose yeah. in the Western Conference Final. I believe it was in Game 2. So Robert Bortuzzo, Ian Cole, good swap. Ian Cole is still a very effective player now for the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, but, you know, Doug Armstrong, again, kind of tweaking his pieces, tweaking his puppets, figuring out what this team needs. And then you look back over time, and it's funny how a lot of these moves have made such an impact, not only to the championship last year, but the potentiality for this team to repeat. Another reason why Doug Armstrong continues to find ways to make this team great. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll come back and talk a little Vladimir Tarasenko as we found out on Wednesday. Could be back sooner than we all expected. So we'll touch on that next here on 101 ESPN. Welcome back. This week in hockey, Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you again. Blues and Stars in action tomorrow night before the Blues head out on a road trip. Another long road trip for this Blues team. So they'll continue to try and be road warriors as they end into the final stretch of this regular season. And Joe, a difference on this road trip compared to the road trips of past is that a player is going to be joining the Blues on this road trip. And that is Vladimir Tarasenko. Now, Doug Armstrong gave the update on Tarasenko after the trade deadline when he gave his press conference on Monday. And he said that, you know, Tarasenko is on his way back. They hope that he can be back sooner rather than later. But he's going to travel with these guys on the road trip. He's not going to play on this upcoming road trip, but he's just going to be with them on the road around the guys kind of back in that natural habitat. And to me, that's another step towards getting him back on the ice uh, in game action. No, this is a great step. I mean, it's all about stepping stones. Whenever you're coming back from injury, it's one step at a time. First of all, it's you get get around the rink a little bit more. You get back to the locker room. Guys start seeing your face. And then you hop on the ice for an optional skate. Maybe you go out there with an assistant coach on a game day where no one else is skating. You start kind of feeling it. That gets people excited. And the next step is you go out there for a practice. You start participating in some drills. Uh, to me, this is just another step in the right direction for Vladimir Tarasenko. Get him on the road. Get him on the plane. Get him around the players. He's going out with dinners. He's getting used to that road routine where when he does come back, it's a lot more natural. It's normal. He doesn't have to worry about figuring out the kinks of how his routine used to go on the road. He knows exactly. He's dialed in. He's ready to rock and roll because, Alex, we have some serious road games, and we have a serious road haul ahead of us right now. I mean, starting after this Dallas game, which is going to happen on the final day of March, on the 20, or excuse me, February, February 29th, Starting March 1st all the way to March 25th, I'm just looking at the schedule here, there is a 23-day stretch from March 2nd to March 25th where the Blues, again, 23 days, they are either traveling or on the road for 19 out of the next 23 days. I mean, that is an insane number to be on the road, and the only reason why this has happened is because that Anaheim game got rescheduled right in the middle of uh two weeks from now so march 11th 
Uh, that starting on March 9th to March 15th, the Blues were supposed to be home for a week. That was supposed to be a three-game homestand where they had a couple-day breaks here and there. But now that rescheduled game in Anaheim, right in the middle of the week, it actually increases travel three days on a one-week homestand. So that has been a um, quite a hiccup in the schedule of the St. Louis Blues. So again, from March 2nd to March 25th, they will be traveling. It's a 23-day stretch, 19 out of the 23, either traveling or on the road. So this is going to be plenty of time to kind of circle back to Vladimir Tarasenko and why this matters. Plenty of time for Vladdy to get very comfortable uh, on the road. And I think this could be a really good thing from a team chemistry standpoint where Vladdy will be out there with the guys. A lot of road time, a lot of road meals, uh, traveling with each other can really help kind of bring this team hopefully back together. Yeah, it's insane the way that this works. And it is a great point, Joe, about that Anaheim game, you know, that also inserts a back-to-back that the Blues didn't have where they're going to play Chicago on the road on March 8th and then March 9th they'll play Florida at home. But the insane part is the Blues really don't play home stands until that last week of the season they have a two-game home stand on march 13th through the 15th but then they're on the road like you just mentioned for four games pretty much uh 10 days that they're on the road trip and then they get a four-game home stand before they wrap up the regular season against the colorado avalanche so look doug armstrong said that you know in an ideal world he'd love to have him for 20 games in the regular season before the playoffs start now, obviously that's not going to happen with 17 but he said it is going to be closer to 20 rather than to two when it comes to games played in the regular season. And Armstrong went on to tell the fast lane this week that, you know, he's hoping that 11 is kind of that sweet spot of getting Vladimir Tarasenko back. And, you know, Joe, I don't think this is a matter of the Blues rushing Tarasenko back onto the ice. Like, it's not like he's still banged up and he's skating around out there. I truly believe that the Blues told Vladimir, don't come back until you're 100%. And in Vladimir's eyes, he's 100%, which is why he's been out there skating and showing to Doug that he's ready to come back. Well, what's interesting about the 11-game comment, which I heard Doug Armstrong say, because he originally said he would like to see him get more towards the 20s and the 3. That was in his press conference last week. Of course, that was impossible because at the time, the Blues only had 19 or 20 games left, and Vladdy was still uh, on the IR and not active. So uh, the point of 11 games is interesting because, if again, you look at the schedule, Alex, when, when players come back from injury, not not everyone, but for the most part, when you have a star come back, there is a trend in the National Hockey League where you like to see him come back for, I'm not going to say an easy home game, but let's just say a comfortable home game where they can get acclimated and confident in a hurry. My point is, you're not going to throw Vladimir Tarasenko into the Wolves when the Blues go play uh, Boston Bruins on the road on a Friday night. To right. me, that, that that may be a little much. So the 11-game comment is interesting because the 11th final game of the season is that San Jose home game. You mentioned the two back-to-back home games the Blues have in this next stretch of 23 days. is San Jose on Friday, March 13th, and they play an afternoon game at home on March 15th against the Ottawa Senators. Two teams, both, both out of the playoff spot right now, both play, out of the playoff hunt right now, and both those games are at home. And that, it would be the 11th game left and the 10th game left in the season if Vladdy does come back for that Friday, Sunday weekend here in St. Louis. That is, that's the kind of date I think now people are, are keeping an eye on because you mentioned this next coming road trip to New York, New Jersey, Chicago. You got a hard back-to-back against the Florida Panthers coming home, and then you go back out for that three days in Anaheim. So that's a lot of travel here in the next week and a half for this Blues team. But you finally get home on that Friday against the Sharks and then uh, Sunday against the Ottawa Senators. 
both, I would say, comfortable home games where the Blues can get Vladdy out there, get him confident, snapping it around. And assuming all health, uh, to me, those are around the dates I believe they're going to try to make this thing work. Again, assuming he's 100% healthy because this is your franchise winger. You took him out. You had him get surgery during the season because you want him for the long term. Uh, of course, you want him for the season. The Blues want to repeat. But uh, this is, is more about this year. So you got to wait till he's 100% feeling confident. All we know now is he is out there with the team, morning skate, practicing. I've been keeping an eye on his shot. His shot has been snappy. He's yeah. been not really releasing a lot of slap shots, but he doesn't take a lot of slap shots. He's more of a snapshot guy. He's a quick release guy. But it has been looking very snappy. We were joking around the locker room a couple days ago about how good he looked, and he looked like he hasn't missed a beat. We didn't get a They did made an extra snap. Those tendons, you got a harder shot now than you did before you got hurt. Of course, he's you know from Russia. He doesn't really see that movie, so he had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> he looked at me like I had like 20 heads. But anyway, um, my point is he is shooting the fuck very well. Well, and that's a big factor in this moving forward. So, Joe, let's look down the road hypothetically here. Uh, your opinion, Tarasenko comes back. He's healthy. He's ready to return. Does he slot in in that top line with Shannon Schwartz, or do you think that Craig Berube adjusts a little bit and keeps Ryan O'Reilly playing with those two? My thought is right now if Vladimir Tarasenko came back tomorrow, if he came back tomorrow against the Dallas Stars, uh, Craig Berube does not touch that top line. I think Braden Chen, Jane Schwartz, and Ryan O'Reilly have been, for better or for worse, a probably the most consistent line night in, night out. Now, of course, we've seen some great flashes from Robert Thomas, Zach Sanford, and David Prom. taking nothing against them because they've had some huge games. I'm talking about a shift-in, shift-out, game-by-game, consistent basis. I do believe that Ryan O'Reilly, Shannon Schwartz line has been the most prolific for here for the St. Louis Blues. So if Vladdy came back tomorrow, I would say absolutely not. I think Craig Bruby would have to go to the drawing board and try to figure something else out, just given the fact that O'Reilly has been a, a really good addition to the Schwartz and Shen. And keep in mind, Schwartz and Shen getting up to about two or three weeks ago were on a little bit of a cold stretch, nothing too serious, but they were looking for a little bit of life. They were looking for a little bit of a spark, and that's why Craig Bruby threw Ryan O'Reilly between the middle of those two guys. He's a playmaker. He can be in the middle. Just do their thing on the wing. Play with that speed. Knowing that they have a great safety blanket in the middle of Ryan O'Reilly. So it will be interesting, again, depending on how things evolve over the next week, two weeks, three weeks when Vladdy comes back. But I know one thing. As much as Craig Bruby has mixed up lines this year, he will figure out the right chemistry of where to put 91 given how the team is trending at the time he returns. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll come back for our final segment. What's up with that? An emotional night for one NHL player. So we'll touch on that next as we wrap up tonight here on 101 ESPN. Final time on this weekend hockey. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale back with you. That sound means it's time for what's up with that. And Joey V, I only got one what's up with that for you, buddy, because I know it's a kind of an emotional one. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. But Bobby Ryan had himself one heck of a night last night. Of course, he put himself into an alcohol abuse program earlier this season, only played 16 games for the Ottawa Senators, then was away from the game for a while. He returned to the NHL a couple couple of games ago but he played his first game back in Ottawa and this guy held a press conference in his first game back 
in the NHL just talking about how he knows that he's been a shadow of who he has been in the past in the NHL. He wants to get back to it. Who knows if he'll get back to it, but he's going to fight his way back in to the lineup. He does, and then last night he scores a hat trick. I thought it was such a cool moment in the NHL, but it also you could see the emotional side of it. As Bobby Ryan was fighting back tears on the bench, it goes to show you the personal person side of hockey when something like that happens for Bobby Ryan. Well, it humanizes the athlete, Alex, which is it's so important for fans and people to understand that these are, in fact, people. I mean, J.G. Pajot gets traded from Ottawa to New York Islanders, and he's emotional. I mean, these are people that deal with um, connections and, and sadness and, of course, addiction like we see with, with Bobby Ryan and what he went through. Um, big hats off to him. Kudos to him. Um, big applause for what he did, having the courage to stand forward during the season and say, I have a problem. I've had a problem with dealing with alcohol for a long time. I don't want to be this person anymore. So he entered himself into the program that was set up by the National Hockey League and NHLPA, which is a terrific program that's helped out a lot of people. I mean, you go back to Robin Leonard um, over his, basically his career, especially the last five to six years, his abuse to alcohol, uh, opioids, and some drugs. Uh, he enters the program as well. We all saw the effects of what a wonderful, crazy, awesome story that was with Robin Leonard and what he did with the New York Islanders before getting uh, traded or not traded, but picked up by the Chicago Blackhawks last offseason. But th- there are players out there who deal with these issues. There are players out there that deal with alcohol and drugs. I'm telling you right now, playing a hockey game and then trying to sleep, given all the pressure and the stress, especially for a goal scorer like Bobby Ryan in a losing market right now in Ottawa. It, it, it builds, it adds, and some players do not have an outlet. They don't have people to talk to. That's saying Bobby Ryan didn't, but there are ways, that, different ways that people deal with these things, and certainly on drugs is an option. No one wants to head into the stressful this lifestyle can be. I mean, think about it. They have a job where 18,000 people are watching every moment and millions are viewing and can rewind every mistake they make. You got 18 coaches now in the squad that are criticizing every mistake you make. It is a very high pressure game that requires uh, an amazing amount of mental resistance uh, and resiliency to get through. And sometimes players are not strong enough at certain times of the career to handle it. But a big shout out to Bobby. He went to the program. He looks like he's coming through uh, very well. Like any recovering alcoholic will probably tell you, you're not officially um, alcoholic free. It's a process. You're in the process of recovering. And that's certainly what Bobby Ryan talked about. He wanted to thank the Ottawa community, the team, for their support throughout this. Of course, he comes back in that game last night. Just a terrific, bone-chilling moment scoring that hat trick. I know he's played close to 900 games in the National Hockey League. Uh, He scored a countless amount of goals, but that night for me, and I believe for him, probably stands out as probably the greatest uh, greatest night of his um, his NHL career. It, it, there's a reason that it was so emotional watching it too, Joe. And and I specifically remember that when he was traded from Anaheim. I mean, this was a guy who was consistently a 30-plus goal scorer with the Anaheim Ducks. He didn't want to be traded, but Anaheim had to move somebody because they had to find a way to keep Ryan Getzloff and Corey Perry and then all of their young defensemen that they had to lock up. So he gets traded to the Ottawa Senators and he goes to Ottawa. He signed Signs this big extension with Ottawa, and there was a lot of pressure put on this guy to be that 30-goal scorer, but it's not an easy task to do when you go to a team that is in the rebuilding mode. So Bobby Ryan really never was able to live up to those expectations by the Ottawa Senator fans, and 
that, of course, is part of the reason why you get caught in something like this. But I thought it was just so cool for a guy to come back because you know he's questioning himself. You know, can I do this again? Am Do I belong in the NHL? Do these fans even want to pay attention to me? It's like I'm sick of getting the booze. I'm sick of hearing all the naysayers because the Canadian hockey markets are not an easy market to play in. But to come through all of that and then score a hat trick in such a meaningful game, I thought was just so cool when it comes to the the way that the sport is viewed from the outside well and again it's, it's that human aspect Alex you just touched on you, you go from playing in Anaheim California with a terrific hockey team they win a cup in 2007 which Bobby Ryan was a part of and you're living in one of the coolest hockey markets from a lifestyle standpoint right. in the National Hockey League I mean you're in California you're close to Huntington Beach I mean <laughs> life cannot get any better and then you get traded after you win the cup and then you have to go to Ottawa. I mean, no, no, no disrespect to Ottawa. It's a beautiful city, but it's very cold up there. I mean, the where the where that rink is located in Ottawa, um, it's very similar to maybe like an Arizona situation where it's kind of outside the city. They did it for tax purposes where they really hasn't really caught on yet. So you're out in the middle of nowhere in Ottawa. It's freezing up there. You're part of a rebuild. You're part of a team that has really never gotten over the hump except for maybe one or two years where they made the playoffs. I think they made the conference finals one year there. But aside from that, it was just, it's been a constant rebuild in a very different looking city and lifestyle compared to where he came from. So again, the, the humanization of all this, this is a player who has dealt with a lot in his career. Of course, we don't know what's happened even before he got to the National Hockey League, but I think just the support that the Ottawa Centers have shown, the whole community of Ottawa and the whole community of the National Hockey League. Um, and I hope, if anything, this encourages players to do exactly what Bobby Ryan did or Robin Leonard did. If you have a problem, it's okay to stand up, speak about it. You may think it's going to take up uh, this huge chunk of your career. You'll never be the same, but look at Robin Leonard. He stepped away from the game for a little bit, came back and he's better for it. Yeah. Bobby Ryan steps away from the game for a little bit, comes back, scores a hat trick. Uh, there is hope out there for people. And I hope that Bobby Ryan speaking up like Robin Leonard did and showing that life can be great again. I hope that encourages uh, lots of players and, lot, and anyone for that matter to do exactly what they did, to have that courage to speak up about it uh, because life will be okay in the end if you seek help. Yeah, it was cool to see, no question about it. Joe, as we wrap things up tonight, buddy, we look ahead to tomorrow night matchup once again against the Dallas Stars. I would envision this game being a lot more different than the last time the Blues and Stars played against each other. You would think so. I mean, this is just one of those cool rivalries now that have developed in the Central Division. I would say over the last couple of years, ever since Jamie Benn sat on uh, our captain's head, and there's just been fire back and forth between these squads. Of course, they clashed in last year's Stanley Cup um, round two, which was some of the most spectacular, fun, exciting hockey we've seen all season long. Jamie Benn, the biggest, one of the biggest villains, I think, for the St. Louis yep. Blues team. These teams, they, they play physical. They play with that edge. It's just going to be another exciting one tomorrow night at Enterprise Center. Can't wait for it. Again, a 7 o'clock puck drop, a 6 o'clock Mitsubishi Electric pregame show presented by First Community, and then a 6.30 BMW of West St. Louis pregame skate. Joey V, great stuff tonight, buddy, as always. Enjoy the weekend, and we will talk to you tomorrow night. Can't wait, Alex. Talk to you then, buddy. That's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. Big thank you to Dan Betlock for his help. I'm Alex Ferrario. Have a great night, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow for Blues Hockey here on 101 ESPN.